The following presentation by Monument Wealth Management LLC is intended for general information purposes only. Please listen to additional important disclosures at the end of this presentation. Welcome to Off the Wall, a podcast aimed at helping you answer the question, what is the point of my wealth? And what steps can I take to make that vision a reality? With over 25 years of combined experience in wealth management, David Armstrong, co-founder of Monument Wealth Management, and Jessica Gibbs, vice president and partner at Monument, are skilled at helping people think through these challenging but important questions. Interested in learning more? Connect with us on Instagram, at Monument Wealth and follow along at MonumentWealthManagement.com. Now, here are your hosts, Dave and Jessica. Hey, Dave, we're back. This is part three in our a political mini-series, if you call it. A little, little sidestep right, for us. Right, a little old-fashioned crossfire. Right. Exactly. So um, if you haven't listened yet, we first had on, at the end of last year, we had Ryan's Priebus on sharing his perspective from the Republican Party. We also had, at the end of the year, in December, we had Bob Stein from First Trust Advisors. Bob is an economist and political commentator, so I'd call him middle unaffiliated. Yeah, right. So he he gave comments on both Republicans and Democrats. And, and today we're here with the Democratic perspective. We'd love to welcome Steve Elmendorf to the podcast Steve is one of the most preeminent political strategists in D.C. He's also currently the co-founder and partner of Subject Matter, a strategic communications and government relations consulting firm. Um, Notably, Steve previously served as chief of staff to House of Representatives Democratic leader Dick Gephardt and was also a senior advisor to the Gephardt, John Kerry, and Hillary Clinton presidential campaigns. So welcome, Steve, to the podcast. Good to be here. And just a special thanks to our mutual friend, Penny Lee, over there at the Financial Technology Association. Really appreciate her getting us together because when you are the co-founder and partner of a company that does strategic communications and we're asking you to be on our podcast to communicate, we know we're on the clock and we really appreciate you taking some time to help us out with this project. So thanks. Sure. Happy to do it. So it seems like forever ago, but to frame the initial part of the conversation, right? Let's go all the way back to November. Everybody, you know, reach back in your memory banks and kind of curious, like what happened? What's your take on the the midterms? I know it's a little old, but let's just start there. Well, you know, sometimes the conventional wisdom is wrong. And this was a case where it was wrong. I think everybody believed as we were headed to early November that the Democrats were going to lose both the House and the Senate. And it was going to be a traditional midterm election where the president and the party in charge loses a lot of seats. What happened was quite the opposite. They kept the Senate and expanded their majority by one when they got to the runoff in Georgia, and they did much better than expected in the House. And again, I think it was different than what people expected. People thought that the traditional James Carville adage that it's the economy stupid was going to rule, right? And inflation was going to drive people's voting patterns. And I think what we saw is for a particular set of reasons, which I'll go through, I think it was other issues than the economy. I think abortion had a huge impact in turning out increasing Democratic turnout and helping the Democrats keep their edge in suburban, well-educated areas with women that they had done in the past. I think Trump inserting himself into the election was a big problem because the other thing that James Carville and other people have all said is elections are about the future, not the past. And by definition, Trump 
keeps trying to make everything about the past. He keeps trying. He doesn't talk about the future. He talks about the 2020 election and people wanted to talk about the future. Running for office is really hard. And sometimes people forget that the quality of the people running matters. It's, it's not just the quality, the experience level of the people running, particularly if you're running for the Senate or governor in a big statewide race. You know, if you've never done this before, even though you've you may have other interesting life experiences, running for office is really hard. And I think we saw some of the Republican Senate candidates who had never done this before, who didn't know how to raise the kind of money they needed to raise, who weren't ready for the back and forth on issues, who didn't have a feel for the middle of the electorate, having just been through a primary. So I think those three things, abortion, Trump talking about the past and the inexperience of some of the Republican candidates. I think, if you know, to that experience question, if in Arizona we had had the governor, Doug Ducey, or in, in New Hampshire, we had had the governor, Chris Sununu, they probably would have won. But instead, we had people who were new to politics and new to campaigning, and they lost. So let's pivot from something that's a little bit in the past, the midterms, to something that's very current right now, and that I know everyone wants to talk about, is the debt ceiling. So in your opinion, Steve, should people, and specifically investors, should they be concerned about a showdown over the debt ceiling? Yes. I don't think we are going to default on the debt. But I do think in order to get to the debt ceiling being raised, we unfortunately may have to go through some perils of Pauline moments that will include the markets reacting to things not going well and the markets reacting to a concern that we could default and that market reaction causing the politicians to say, oh, this is a problem. The Dow just went down 700 points, as we've seen in some past fiscal cliffs we've had. And so I'm very worried about it from an investor standpoint. I think when you look at it, you know, it's six months away and all experts, I think, are pretty much in agreement that we're okay until the June 15th quarterly filings. The big question will be, where does Treasury end up after those corporate personal filings? And then can they make it to August or sooner? I don't think many people think it'll last much beyond August. And right now, the two sides, the Republican side in the House has a position that is not sustainable. What they are advocating for in terms of spending cuts in return for raising the deficit is not passed. It couldn't pass in their own group, let alone in the broader Congress and get signed by the president. So they have a position that they're articulating that is not doable. The Democratic position is we just want a clean debt ceiling. The problem with that position is that for Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, to do a clean debt ceiling is him basically saying, I'm going to do that and then I'm going to resign because his position will not be sustainable with his own group. So if you take those two facts, which I think are our facts, then the question is, what's the compromise? What is the give that Democrats have to do to get McCarthy to be able to put it on the floor? McConnell will be a big player in that. And is it a substantive spending cut deal? Is it a process spending cut deal? Is it a commission? Is it something? But there's going to have to be some negotiation there to get to a result. And I fear that in the process of those negotiations, they could fall apart at various points, and then the markets will react badly. That seems to be a likely outcome. And I think we always try to answer the question, okay, great. So what? Or what now? And I think anybody that's listening that hears you say, you know, yeah, the investors should be worried. I agree. And so my advice to people, just general advice would be, look, if you forecast a need for cash inside the next six months, let's just say between now and August 1st, I'm just throwing out time. If you've got something you've got to pay for and the market is buoyant right now, okay, 
then raise your cash right now and be able to ride out that volatility because everybody knows that the market doesn't like uncertainty. The market doesn't like volatility. And if we're going to inject that uncertainty and that volatility into it, then have your cash out now. Get your cash out now. And then that way you don't have to worry about selling at the bottom to fund something. I think that's just our general advice on how to handle it. So not knowing, should they be worried? Great. That's all fine. I think it's how people react to that. That's really important. But back to politics. Here's two things that I do really, really well from my couch. College football coach and elected politician. I am (laughs) awesome at those two things, sitting on my couch, yelling at the television set. So my question is, how much should I expect the normal brinksmanship to adjust as it relates to this negotiating on the debt policy? You kind of alluded to it that maybe the compromise would result in a possible resignation. But what else should people expect to see from their couch on this? Well, I think there's two things that people should worry about this year. One is this debt ceiling timing of June, July, August. And how does that resolve itself? And does it resolve itself in more disruption of the government? Or does it resolve itself in a a deal of some sort that carries people through the next election. So you have a pretty good sense of where things are going to be from July 1st until the next presidential election in 2024. Or does it resolve itself in a sort of bumpy landing with a kick the can to we're going to do this again in January or something? And I think all that is unknown at the moment. Obviously, for investors, it would be great if we could even if it's a little bumpy getting to a result that we could get to a result that took us through the next presidential election. I think the other inflection point to look at is when the fiscal year ends on September 30th and whether or not the government is funded and does the government shut down. Now, we have been through shutdowns before. My view is they are distressing and they cause trouble, but they're not catastrophic the way a default would be. And, you know, you can have a two-day shutdown or a one-week shutdown. And generally what happens is the people whose fault it is get blamed and realize it's not a really good idea. But that could also cause some more. Again, I think markets won't react all that bad to that because they've been through it before and seen that it's not catastrophic. Right. And specifically, I remember it was during the Obama administration, but I don't remember exactly when, that we had a shutdown, but not a default, right? Am I recalling that? Yeah, we've had. Yeah, right. So we have seen that before. But yeah, I, I agree. Jessica, you had something you wanted to... I wanted to pivot away from the debt ceiling as, as fun as that conversation is. <laughs> and Steve, I'd love to kind of ask your perspective on where you see the Democratic Party going. Well, I think the election, one of the good results of the election for someone like me, who's a moderate, is that I think moderation did pretty well. I think that when people look at why we did well and where we're doing well, you know, elections are sometimes about all we have to do is energize our base to win. And I I think we won this election primarily because we did a pretty good job of work in the center. And I think both parties, at least the Democratic Party, I think realizes that long-term success in winning elections, you cannot just win the elections by jacking up your base. You have to figure out how to talk to that group between the 40-yard lines. So I think that's a good thing. I think the agenda for the next two years is going to, we're in divided government. And with one part of the government, the House, which is sort of unrealistic in their expectations. And I think the question will become, are there any issues that we can reach some bipartisan consensus on. And if you listen to Biden carefully over the last weeks and months, you know, his message is, 
I succeeded in these major bipartisan accomplishments of the Chips and Science Act, of the Infrastructure Bill, of our COVID Response Act. The IRA was not bipartisan, but it was a big accomplishment. So I think he's going to argue we need more bipartisan accomplishments. He wrote one, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal last week about, here are some things we could all agree on on tech policy. I think the problem's going to be, I don't know that there is a willing partner in the House Republicans to do that. I think they seem pretty invested in their political strategy of making him fail, not working with him to get things done. Do you see that changing anytime soon, or do you think they're going to stick to their guns on that for a while? I don't see it changing. I think it's pretty toxic. You know, look, I think the Senate Republicans have a different set of policies and a set of ideas and that they want to get some things done. And they, you know, statewide office holders generally have a different view of the world than members of Congress who come from a less diverse, more compact group of ideologies and people. But in the House, I just don't know what the incentives are. If you're from one of these very, very conservative districts, there's not a lot of incentive to cooperate, unfortunately. There are a few issues we could talk about, which, you know, it's possible Crypto, which some of your listeners may be interested in, there seems to be, you know, Chairman McHenry in the House Financial Services Committee is a reasonable person who has some pretty substantive views on crypto. And I think there is, after the the FTX crash, I think there's a bipartisan acknowledgement that this is an area of the economy that probably needs some regulation. And so that's one area where I could see something happening. There's things of less interest to your listeners, like the farm bill, which traditionally gets done between a coalition of of rural interests on agriculture and city interests on food stamps. There's a reauthorization of the Federal Aviation Administration, which is interesting to all of us who fly, who think that the FAA should get more money and be better at what they do. Some of the other big issues, like what happens in the tech sector, which is obviously important to a lot of us who own, who own those stocks, I find it hard to believe that there's a real bipartisan consensus. Everybody has a view of what's wrong, but they have different solutions for how to solve that problem. You mean as far as regulation on the tech sector? Yeah. And then the other issue that obviously investors follow closely is taxes. And I sort of feel like on taxes, we're in a pretty static period. When Trump was president, the Republicans controlled everything. We had a major tax bill. Biden president, Democrats control everything. We have the Inflation Reduction Act, also a major tax bill. Now we're in divided government. I have a hard time seeing significant tax legislation, especially since we have in the future the expiration of a bunch of the Trump tax cuts in 2025. And I feel like that is probably the next big inflection point when there will be a significant discussion about taxes, because whenever a tax bill expires and rates go up automatically, that tends to motivate politicians to figure out what can we do. Do you foresee that being a discussion before those tax cuts expire at the end of 2025, or is that going to be a 2026 onward conversation after the tax rates have gone back up? I think anything happening will be after the next presidential election. I think there will be people in both parties over the next two years trying to set the table of what they ought to do. But reality is, I don't think anything significant is going to happen. So for people listening for tax planning, probably status quo through the next presidential election, right? Maybe a little bit beyond that status quo. Probably the same thing applies for trust and estate planning too. So the state, state yes. laws won't change. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. The changes that were made under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the elevated estate tax exemption, I think specifically is what you're talking about. That will still remain, in fact, until the end of December 2025. Yeah. 
Yes, right, right. Don't wait until December before the sunset. So please, everybody. So I'm curious if you have any on-deck politicians that you really like. Who's out there on either side, or just pick one, doesn't matter, but I'm curious, you got any up-and-coming favorites? Who who should we be paying attention to that doesn't necessarily have the big national spotlight all the time? That's a good question. And I, I think in both parties, and this has been true for a while, I think there's a lot of younger politicians out in the states who are interesting, who are doing innovative things. I think on the Democratic side in particular, the new governor of Pennsylvania, Josh Shapiro, early 50s, many people are now starting to say, gee, he could be the first Jewish president. He's moderate. He won a picture-perfect race, did everything right, was a very good attorney general. And I think he, you know, he's the governor of one of the swingiest of the swing states right now, and he'll have a big profile. I think that the new governor of Maryland, who we may watch because we're all nearby, Westmore, dynamic, Again, Oprah likes him. Oprah, I was shocked. I saw Oprah introducing him. She was at the inauguration. (laughs) She introduced him. Republican Dave likes him. Yeah, I think he's great. I'm so energized by him. Love it. So I think those two in particular, I'm excited about. You know, I love Joe Biden as a Democrat, but I do think there are people in both parties who sit here and think, are we really going to have a Joe Biden, Donald Trump election? Like, is this what we're... (sighs) left with here. And they would probably say, gee, you know, Josh Shapiro versus Ron DeSantis would be more interesting. Or another, you know, Josh Shapiro versus Nikki Haley. So I think in both parties, there's an interest in getting to the next generation. And I just mentioned two Republicans who are interesting next generation, you know, less than 60 years old and still experienced. And I think there's a thirst out there for younger, not, you know, I don't, 50s is 50s young, but yeah, I guess it's young when you're comparing I, I, when you're comparing eighty year olds. Yeah, and I think yeah. that you know I think the House of Representatives is a very good model right now, where Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, and Jim Clyburn, who are the top three leaders, all of whom are eighty two, eighty three, have I think stellar careers, done a great job, but they all, in unison, with no argument, moved aside, and three new people, all of whom are in their fifties from different parts of the country have moved up, Akeem Jeffries and Catherine Clark and Pete Aguilar. And it was a seamless transition. I think people are like, this is great. We loved our old leaders. They did a great job, but it's time for some new fresh faces. And I think both parties could probably benefit from some of that. And I'm in my mid-50s and I haven't decided if I'm running either. So I'm a wild card out there still too, Steve. I just want you to, just want you to know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 62. Yeah. I'm that's really I just want to interesting. make sure I yeah. make enough money to retire. So. Right. Don't we all? Don't we all? That's great. Thanks for sharing that with us. I agree. There are some exciting people out there. I definitely, I'm excited to see some of the next generation people come up on both sides. And maybe there's, maybe they're the ones that find some bipartisan common ground. Maybe just a new generation changes things a little bit. We can all hope. But do you care to handicap who could potentially not win, but who could be some of the Last couple of people standing on the Republican side and to just guess, let's just say something happens and Biden doesn't run. Who would be some of the people you would handicap that could make it pretty far along in the primary process? Well, I think if both parties, if you move Trump and Biden aside, you're going to have a very robust field. I think in the Republican Party, Ron DeSantis is obviously the front runner after Trump. I think Governor Yunkin in Virginia has 
he's a very conservative guy, but he comes across with sort of a sunny disposition, which I think people like optimism in their politics, which is one thing that I would sort of view as a negative about DeSantis is I find him sort of constantly negative. I think Nikki Haley's in that same category, and they're all very conservative. I think the question for the Republican Party is do the the successful governors like Larry Hogan, who just left Maryland, very popular in Maryland, governed in a blue state, Chris Sununu in New Hampshire, similarly, do they have any future in the Republican Party or are they just too moderate? But I think, you, you know, you also have a bunch of candidates like Pompeo and they'll be a big field. I think on the Democratic side, the vice president would be the front runner by virtue of where she sits. And in, in the base of our party, the strength of African-American women is how do you get past her? But I think she wouldn't be given a free ride. I think for someone like a Josh Shapiro, it's probably a little soon. It's hard to get elected governor and just turn around right away because the election would start in the first or second quarter of next year and sort of abandon your job and say, I'm going to go run for president. But I think there are people out there who ran before who were younger and interesting. And I think you'd have, besides vice president, I think Secretary Buttigieg would probably look at it as an incredibly talented person. I think Cory Booker, who ran before, Amy Klobuchar, who ran before, would look at it. I think where we don't have, you know, Jared Polis, the governor of Colorado, has talked about, and he's had another, you know, these governors have had a pretty successful time. And a lot of them have recently, you know, now they will say, the Republicans would say it's because they got all this COVID money. But if you look at a lot of these governors, even Democrats, they cut taxes, they have surpluses, they have good economic stories to tell. And so I think it's a better platform sometimes to run as somebody who has a success story to tell about running a state than it is to be part of the Washington morass. Well, on that nice positive note, um, (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much, Steve, for joining us. I think this was really helpful to hear a perspective. Yes, inside Washington, but still, I mean, we all know what happens in Washington impacts everyday people and including investors. So really appreciate you sharing your expertise and your take on what's going on. Yeah, we appreciate your time. Thanks. Great. Take care. The previous presentation by Monument Wealth Management LLC, Monument, was intended for general information purposes only. No portion of the presentation serves as the receipt of or as a substitute for personalized investment advice for Monument or any other investment professional of your choosing. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk, and it should not be assumed that future performance of any specific investment or investment strategy or any non-investment related or planning services, discussion, or content will be profitable, be suitable for your portfolio or individual situation, or prove successful. Monument is neither a law firm nor accounting firm, and no portion of its services should be construed as legal or accounting advice. No portion of this content should be construed by a client or prospective client as a guarantee that he should will experience a certain level of results if Monument is engaged or continues to be engaged to provide investment advisory services. A copy of Monument's current written disclosure brochure discussing our advisory services and fees is available upon request or at monumentwealthmanagement.com.